Well, good morning. Welcome to the uh, Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors uh, here. As uh, Mike just read, we will be in 1 John chapter 4. The reason he paused and no one was surprised that we're in 1 John, uh, at least if you're a member or a regular attendee, is we just walk through books of the Bible. And so today we'll be in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Next week, we will pick up in, uh, in verse 17. And so as you make your way there in your Bible or on your device or whatever it might be, I want to tell you uh, about a phenomenon that I love. I love when people around me are put into somewhat uncomfortable, awkward positions. In particular, one of the things that I love is when someone evidences the fact that they are completely not paying any attention whatsoever to what everyone else is doing around them. And so the other day in, uh, in uh, just time that staff is hanging out uh, together, we were talking about a movie, uh, the movie uh, The Peanut Butter Falcon starring Shia LaBeouf. And so we're talking about this movie and all of a sudden our beloved Carl says, hey, has anyone seen that movie The Peanut Butter Falcon? And we just stare at him. We were literally talking about it, just talking about it, not only just talking about it, we were still talking about it. In fact, Zach, we were so just talking about it that Zach thought, surely Carl's just joking. He's making a joke about the fact that we've been talking about this too long or something uh, like that. But uh, Carl was not joking. Instead, he was fantasizing about the latest innovations in French horn performance or plot holes in the Star Wars canon or whatever it is that Carl thinks about in his uh, downtime. But whatever it was, he had, let's just call it a senior moment. And, uh, and so he just completely uh, zoned out and had no idea what was going on. It was almost like the rest of the staff and our conversation was just like white noise. Now, sometimes that is a really good strategy for getting work done when you work with guys like Zach and Tim who are very loud and very outgoing and very exuberant. Sometimes the best way to get work done is just to tune them out. But that is not what Carl was doing in, uh, in this moment. Instead, he just completely checked out. Now, to be fair, we all do that every once in a while. Right? There's a sense in which every one of us, at some point or another, uh, we check out, we zone out, we tune out, we're not paying attention. Uh, this, ha- this ever happened uh, to you while you're driving? Like you get in your car, and then all of a sudden you're home, and you're like, I don't remember the drive at all. And that's kind of a scary thought, because you're behind the, uh, you know, the wheel of a vehicle, and you could have killed somebody. And maybe you did, you don't know, right? <laughs> I'm not talking about like an AI car or something like that. Just, you literally just don't uh, remember. You're just on autopilot. Or speaking of autopilot, we actually have a couple of pilots uh, who are here uh, today. So maybe you just plug your ears. But for the rest of us, when was the last time you paid attention to a safety presentation on a plane? Probably never, right? It's not like you, you really need this presentation that they've done in order to figure out how a seatbelt works, the intricacies of the seatbelt, as if there's anybody that's like, I thought they were just handles. I just hold on to them and just hope if turbulence happens that the the handles will help me. No, everybody understands these sorts of things. Now, I'm not saying that seatbelts are unimportant. I think seatbelts are very important. In fact, whenever I was a teenager, if a friend would come and pick me up and uh, his seatbelt was broken or he didn't have seatbelts in, in the seat that I was supposed to sit in or whatever, I just wouldn't get in the car with him, which is why I didn't have a lot of friends. 
But I think seatbelts are important. I think that where, knowing where the exits are uh, on, on an airplane or in the church or whatever it is, is really important. I think it's really important that you know um, where the flotation devices are or what to do if the little mass drops down uh, from the ceiling. I think all of those things are important, but for some reason, we don't ever pay attention for some reason, instead of paying attention whenever uh, the flight attendant is giving her, uh, her little uh, spiel or uh, we're watching something on uh, the video screen, instead we're shopping Sky Mall or we're, we're on our iPads or reading a book or whatever it might be, we're not paying attention. Why is that? Because we've heard it before. And that same temptation applies in regards to a sermon. There's nothing that I'm going to say today that's novel. There's nothing that I'm going to say that's new. In fact, this is particularly relevant when it comes to our particular text today. Everything that comes up in these two verses is said somewhere else in the context of 1 John. So we've actually uh, encountered all of these ideas. Every single little phrase that we encounter here, we've uh, encountered this theological concept somewhere else in 1 John. So it can be really tempting for us to just tune out to just zone out and thus miss out on an opportunity for grace and life and joy and hope and all of these sorts of good things. So let's pray in particular and ask the Spirit to help us not do that, not zone out, not tune out, not be distracted this morning. First, I'll just ask you to pray for yourself. Maybe you know your, your own innate tendencies to just tune out. Next, would you pray for those around you, whether you know them or not, just that the Lord would give us a collective attentiveness to his word and an affection for his word. And then would you pray for me, just for faithfulness and boldness. So Father, we ask for your help this morning. We trust that you are good and that you do good and that you've given us this word and though uh, it is in a sense repetitive, uh, it's not therefore irrelevant for us. And so I pray that you would help us, Lord, to see uh, the glory of your word as the psalmist prays, that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your law. We pray these things because you're good and you do good, so we ask in Christ's name, amen. Let's look at 1 John 4, verse 15 where uh, John writes, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Now before we get to this, let's go back and consider uh, the context. Let's read our text from last week in order to get a, a sense of the overarching context. First John four thirteen through 14 says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Zach preached that last week. He did a great job uh, walking through what that mean, uh, means by reminding us in particular that the primary evidence of salvation is not whether or not you're healthy or wealthy. Uh, the primary evidence of your salvation is not whether or not you feel happy or you feel blessed. 
The primary evidence of your salvation is not some uh, possessing some particular spiritual gift, like you speak in tongues or something like that. That in the context of, uh, uh, of John's epistle, I- I- indeed in the context of the entire scripture, the primary evidence that you are born of God is that you have the spirit of God. That's it. How do you know that you are born of God? How do you know that you are saved? How do you know that you are justified? It's by the fact that you have the Spirit. But how do you know that you have the Spirit? Well, in the context of 1 John, that's evidenced in a a number of ways. It's evidenced theologically, it's evidenced morally, and it's evidenced relationally. That is, there are certain theological truths that those who are born of God confess about the Son of God. Certain things that we believe about Jesus. That's the theological test. There's also a moral test. There are certain, there's a disposition towards sin that you should, if you love and trust God, if you have been born of God, you should be growing in your hunger and desire to put sin to death and to be awakened to greater holiness in your life. Not that you're perfect, not that you will ever obtain uh, perfection in this life, but you should be growing in your desire for holiness. That's the, uh, that's the moral test. And then there is also a relational test. That is that you should be growing in your desire to love and serve others. That you're not indifferent or apathetic. Or when you find yourself being indifferent or apathetic, that you repent of that. That you want to grow in regards to loving and serving uh, others. And, and John will uh, give us these three tests over and over. John doesn't write like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul writes in a very linear sort of fashion. So uh, here in the next year, we're hoping to preach through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, and what we'll see there is he moves from one topic to the next topic, and then he never really circles back around, but John's not like that. John doesn't write in a very linear sort of way. John writes in a very cyclical way. He deals with the theological test, then the relational test, then the moral test, then the love test, uh, then the, uh, the theological test, and on and on he is going uh, to go. And so in our text today, we're going to see hints of two of these tests. We're gonna see hints of the theological and also the relational as we talk about confessing Christ and also abiding in love. So let's uh, let's dive in uh, to it. And we begin with this phrase, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. Now that relates back to what we talked about last week, uh, which, uh, which Zach talked about, which is that the apostles testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Back in 1 John chapter 4, it says, by this we know that we abide in him uh, because he's given us the spirit. And so we have seen and testify. Well, it's not that you and I have seen and testify. I haven't seen Jesus. You haven't seen Jesus. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. But the apostles had seen the resurrected Lord. And uh, so they were witnesses to that. That's their job. Their job is to bear witness to what they have seen. Our job is to confess belief in their testimony. That's, uh, th- that's what he's saying here. We confess what the apostles testify to. Their job, as we saw last week, is to give testimony to what they have witnessed. Uh, their witnesses to Christ's death, his, uh, uh, his life, his death, his resurrection. Their job is to provide witness. Our job is to believe and confess that witness, that testimony. And so, in the context of our verse today, what is it that we confess? Well, he says that we confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, this is really, really important because the essence of Christianity isn't just, I believe in Jesus. 
If you go out and you ask somebody, do you believe in Jesus? And they say yes, you are no closer to knowing whether or not they are a Christian than before you asked them the question. Everybody would say, in some sense, that I believe in Jesus. Even the person who doesn't believe Jesus existed believes that Jesus is a legend. There's a sense in which they believe it. Muslims believe in Jesus. They believe that he is a respected prophet, the most respected prophet outside of Muhammad. Mormons believe in Jesus. They just believe that he's a spirit born in heaven who is the brother of Satan. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus. They believe that he was created as the archangel Michael before the world was created and that he's a lesser God than Jehovah. Lots of atheists believe in Jesus. At the very least, they believe that he was a historical figure or some of them would believe that he's a legend or something like that, a good teacher. So the question isn't, do you believe in Jesus? But rather, what do you believe about Jesus? That's what sets Christianity apart from all other world religions and especially from the cults. Do you believe that he is the son of God? Do you believe that he's the second person of the Trinity? Do you believe that Jesus is fully God and fully human? Do you believe that, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that he is the propitiatory sacrifice, that is the sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God and removes your sin, that he is the propitiatory sacrifice for sin who rose from the dead? Do you believe that he's the son of David, the messianic king? Do you believe that he will return and one day make all things new and conquer all of his enemies. Think about it like this. We've talked about this before. Uh, up on the screen, we'll put a little slide. All that exists fits in two categories. Every single thing that exists or has ever existed or will ever exist fits into one of two categories. You have the creator and then you have creation. So here's the question. Where does Jesus belong? Where does Jesus fit? Is Jesus above the line? Or is Jesus below the line? The heretic Arius, the early church heretic Arius, believed in Jesus. He just believed that Jesus belonged below the line. So do Mormons, so do Muslims, so do Jehovah's Witnesses, so do others. But Orthodox Christians have always confessed, always believed that he belongs above the line. Indeed, he must be above the line because salvation must come from God. God has to condescend to save man. Man can't reach up to God. God has to reach down to man. So salvation must come from above the line because everything below the line is itself tainted by sin. So Christ must be God. Christ must be creator or we're doomed. We're damned. If you don't believe this, then you don't believe in Jesus, at least in the way that the Bible would say. You believe in some form of Jesus, but that Jesus has been recreated, refashioned, reformed in your own image or in some image that's more relatable or more controllable or, or more palatable or whatever it might be. But if you do believe in this Jesus, in the Jesus that scripture is going to present, that's an evidence of the Spirit's work in your life and thus an evidence of God's abiding uh, in you. Last week, if you were here, uh, Zach did a little illustration where he took a note card. I wish I, I would have thought to bring this up, but he, th he took a note card uh, and he took a Bible and, uh, and he put the note card in the Bible and he said, now, where, whatever is true of that Bible in regards to where it is, is also true of the note card. As long as the note card remains in the Bible, 
If the, uh, if the Bible is to my right, the note card is to my right. If the Bible is to my left, the note card is to my left. If the Bible is in my car, the note card is in my car. And, uh, and on and on we could go. Likewise, with the image of being united to Christ, abiding in Christ. What is true of him is thus true of you in regards to his status. He's righteous, so you're righteous. Now, you're not inherently righteous of your own worth or value or effort. Uh, You're not righteous in and of yourself, but in relation to him, in your union with Christ. He is perfect, so you are perfect. He is beloved, so you are beloved, and so forth. As a result, all of our righteousness, all of our holiness, all of our justification, all of our sanctification, all of God's love, all of God's grace, all of God's mercy, all of our pardon, all of our hope, every promise, every boast is wrapped up in Christ Jesus. In order to attain any of those things, we must be in him. Those who are in him, that is those who are united to him through faith, and only those who are in him are beneficiaries of these blessings. Let me give you a little illustration of this. Imagine, if you will, that you are 40,000 feet uh, above sea level. You're up in the air about 40,000 feet. It's about negative 60 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. But at the same time, you're traveling about 500 miles per hour. So I don't even know what the wind chill is. It's, It's absurdly cold. Let me ask you this question. Could you survive there for hours on end? Well, how you answer that uh, depends entirely on whether or not you're in a plane. You see, being in the plane completely changes everything about that scenario. If you're not in that plane, that environment is absolutely inhospitable. But if you're in the plane, you're comfortable. Unless you're in economy or coach or something like that, you're not comfortable then. But you get the point of the illustration. As long as you're in the plane, you're safe. That's an illustration. That's union with Christ or abiding in Christ. Because we are in Christ, because we are united to Christ, we get, in cert- we get certain rights and privileges. In fact, every right, every privilege, uh, privilege that you have is only by virtue of your union with Christ. A pastor and theologian named Robert Raymond uh, wrote this on this topic, and I've always found it to be really helpful. helpful. He says, union with Christ is the fountainhead the fountainhead from which flows the Christian's every spiritual blessing. Repentance and faith, pardon, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. In other words, every single good gift, every blessing, every promise that you have from the Father flows through his Son and by his Spirit to those who are united to the Son by the Spirit. That's union with Christ. That's abiding in Christ in, uh, in this language here. Now, just a quick note before we move on. You'll notice here there is this, this uh, hint or this sense of uh, reciprocity or mutual abiding. It says God abides in you, but then you also see that you abide in God. There is this mutual abiding, similar to what Paul will write in, uh, in his letters about us being in Christ and also Christ being in us. You ever notice that in Paul's letters? At times he'll say we're in Christ or in him or in the beloved. And then other times he will say that Christ is in us. So John uses his abiding language to accomplish the same things. And we've seen that before. Again, everything that we see in the text, we've seen somewhere else in 1 John. 1 John 3, 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God 
and God in him. You see this mutuality, you see this reciprocity. 1 John 4, 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So why does John mention this mutual abiding, this reciprocity? I think John is here calling to mind the promise of Christ from his gospel. We've seen as we've walked through 1 John that, uh, that John will oftentimes use language in 1 John that calls to mind something from the gospel of John. And so I think that's what he's doing here. John 14, 20 says, in that day, this is Jesus speaking, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. So as Father and Son have dwelled together in perfect harmony, perfect love, so we as sons and daughters of God, will also share in that intimacy. God in us and us in God. There is this mutual abiding. We abide in Christ. We are in Christ. We are united to Christ. But at the same time, God abides in us. That's the promise of the new covenant. That's part of the promise of the new covenant that the prophets of the Old Testament point toward. So both are true. God's people abide in God and God abides in his people. So again, the, the, the flow of this section is basically this. How do you know that you are saved? How do you know that you are saved? Because, of God, because God abides in you and because you abide in God. But how do you know that God abides in you? By the presence of the Spirit. And how do you know that you have the Spirit? Because you confess Christ and abide in love as the next verse says. So let's look at that. First John four sixteen. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Let's look at that first phrase there. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. And let's begin with the short little uh, phrase, know and believe. What does uh, that mean? Well, that's most likely uh, what's called a hendiadis. What's a hendiadis? It's when you express one idea by splitting it into two words or phrases. For instance, if I tell someone, uh, I'm gonna go and visit. I don't mean go and visit are two separate things. I'm using the phrase go and visit to express one idea. Or if I say, I'm going to uh, try and do something. Again, try and do something are not two separate ideas. They are two phrases that are both pointing to the same idea. Or if someone says, this coffee is nice and hot. We don't mean two things. As if there's really unnice coffee out there. There's really mean coffee out there. It's really careless or whatever it might be. No, we mean the same thing. Nice and hot are two words, but they're expressing the same uh, idea. That's a hendiadis, and that's uh, what I think that John is doing here. I don't, I don't say this just to give you a, uh, an irrelevant English lesson or something, but so that you won't think that John is meaning two separate and distinct things. In other words, so that you wouldn't read this and say, well, he says know and believe. So maybe you can know but not believe. Or maybe you can believe but not know. That's not what John intends at all. For him, he's pointing to one particular thing. Why is it that he uses uh, this uh, language? Why is it that he uses this hendiadis? I think, again, he's most likely mirroring something from his gospel. John 6, 67 through 69. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So what is it that we have come to know and believe here in the context of 1 John? In the Gospel of John, 
It's that they have come to know and believe that Jesus is the Holy One of God, that he is the Christ. But what is it in the context of 1 John? It is the love that God has for us. And that fits well in the uh, context of 1 John chapter 4. A few weeks ago we read this in uh, verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We talked before, propitiation is a fancy theological word that means the, sat, uh, the sacrifice which satisfies God's wrath. So we know the depths of the love of God by the cost that he paid to secure our life and joy. He sent his son as our propitiation, the sacrifice that satisfies his wrath. Let me give you kind of an illustration of this. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I was uh, on YouTube for some reason, and I saw a video, and that video was this kid had fallen onto uh, the, the tracks. It was somewhere in, in Asia, I couldn't quite make out where it was, and so it was at a subway station. And that, uh, that kid, uh, her dad, just had instantly jumped down and covered uh, the kid and, and was laying on top of his child as the train roared past just inches away from his head. And thankfully, both the kid and the dad escaped with just some scratches and some bruises and that kind of stuff. Neither of them were actually hit by uh, the train. But it was this moment of sacrifice where the outcome was uncertain. The outcome's potentially fatal. And yet that dad dove right on those tracks. Why? because he loved his child. Let me give you another illustration. Uh, my first trip to, uh, to Japan, some of you know my dad was adopted from Japan. So in uh, 2010, my family went over there and saw the, uh, the orphanage where he was adopted. And so while we were there, we were waiting on a uh, subway and my nephew, who was maybe five or something at the time, was kicking his leg like this and all of a sudden his loafer just went flying off his foot. It was Sperry Topsider, that was the type of shoe he was wearing, and landed on the tracks. And so I jumped down and I covered it. No, I didn't do that, <laughs> right? It's just a shoe, right? Instead, we waited. Ja Japanese people have the best technology, right? I say this as someone who's a quarter Japanese. And so they have this big grabby claw thing that they use, and, uh, and it's like, uh, like 10 feet long. And so an attendant eventually came and uh, picked up that shoe. Why didn't we jump down? Because it's just a shoe. If my nephew, though, would have fallen, I'm sure we would have jumped down, or I would have pushed my brother at the very least, <laughs> right? In other words, the point that I'm making is the degree of sacrifice that we make for something reveals the depth of our love for that thing. Let me say that again. The degree of sacrifice that you're willing to make for something reveals the depth of your love for that thing. So God sacrificed his beloved son. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. Not only that, but in the previous verse, we saw that God's love draws us into this intimate relationship with him described as mutual abiding. So by this, by what God has given and where we are ultimately placed in his son, God has placed us where his love is most potent that is in his son. By this we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. Earlier, we said that the goal isn't just to believe in Jesus, but to believe certain things about Jesus. 
to believe in the Jesus as revealed in Scripture. So here we see that not only do we confess that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, the Word made flesh who died on the cross and rose from the dead, but do you also believe that he did so as a manifestation of the love of God for us? Or let me say it like this more personally. Do you believe that he did so as a manifestation of the love of God for you? All of your anxiety, all of your fear, every sin is rooted in a failure for you to actually embrace this, for you to actually believe this, for you to actually confess this, that God's a good father who gives good gifts, that he loves you, that he gave his son for you. You can believe that Jesus is the only begotten son of God by nature. But until you really believe that you are a beloved son or daughter of God by adoption, you'll never really experience freedom or joy or hope as he intends. Let's keep going. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Now for whatever reason, it's really popular in evangelical circles uh, Twitter and those kinds of things to, to, to kind of divide the head and the heart as if those are intention. And so people think, well, you have theology guys, then you have love guys. And theology guys wear sweater vests and they memorize the Greek New Testament or something. And then heart guys, they just tell people about Jesus all day. They don't wear shoes and, uh, you know, whatever it is. And I've known people who kind of fit those caricatures. The problem is that caricature doesn't actually fit with Scripture, notice how naturally the text is going to intermingle love and truth, theology and service. The apostle knows of no separation between the head and the heart, between theology and love. Those are inseparable to the authors of Scripture. The heart can't love what the mind doesn't know. Theology is the fuel or the fire uh, or the, the fuel for the fires of our devotion. So it's perfectly reasonable, as we said, for John to just move back and forth, not in a linear fashion, but cyclically, if that's a word, to move back and forth from love to theology to morality to theology to love to theology to morality and so forth. Because all of those things are interchange, uh, all of those things are inseparable, indivisible for him. Even the statement, God is love, is a theological statement that demands a theological response. We've seen this phrase before. Again, we've seen all of these phrases before. In verse eight, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Jared preached that a few weeks back and it did a really great job helping us to understand that when we say God is love, we don't actually mean that love is God. And yet it's all too easy for us to distort that, to infer that when it says God is love, Therefore, that it must mean that love is God. The problem with that is that it makes our standard of love the measure of God. It actually makes us the arbiter, the author, the definer of what is and is not loving rather than God. Here's what I mean. Imagine that you're having a conversation with someone where you're talking about any, fill in the blank, any controversial subject of scripture, homosexuality, transgenderism, abortion, euthanasia, spanking your kids, allowances for divorce, whatever it might be. When that person doesn't like God's commands, what do they do? They appeal to his love, as if those are intention. God is love, 
so he would never ask me to deny my feelings or desires. God is love, so he would never ask me to remain in this unhappy marriage. God is love, so he must want me above all things to be happy. And so therefore, I should do this thing that scripture says that I shouldn't do. Or I shouldn't do this thing that scripture says that I should do. What have we done in that moment? We've made the human feeling of love the standard or definition. And then we've kind of molded God to that image as if God is a big uh, gob of Play-Doh that we can manipulate to fit our preconceived notions of love and morality. We'll contrast that to the reality, which is that God himself is the standard of love, and by virtue of the fact that God calls something sin, it is most loving for us to actually agree and to conform ourselves to his word. You see, the Bible says to speak the truth in love, which means that anytime you speak the truth, you are being loving, at least to some degree. But if you speak falsehood, you're not being loving in any degree at all. God is the standard, and we must conform ourselves to his love. When we say love is God, we conform God to our pre-existing standard of love. But when we recognize that God is love, we should conform ourselves to the definition of love as it's laid out in Scripture. In other words, your flesh the world, our culture around us, they all have pre-existing notions of what is loving. But unless we actually submit those presuppositions to the word of God, we will never actually love others or love God. So God, in his love, demands certain things of his children. And he forbids certain things. Just like any of us who are good parents demand certain things of our children and forbid certain things. I'm being, I'm being loving when I don't allow my kids to drink poison. That's not unloving, that is loving likewise with God. Because he's a good father, he gives what is best. His commands are not unkind, they're not an example of his unkindness or his hatred, but rather of his love. Even when it costs him, he does what is best for those he loves. That's what it means when we talked about before that he gave his son as a propitiatory sacrifice. He has done what is best by giving what is best. So when he gives commands, those commands are not contrary to his love. Instead, they exemplify it. They evidence it. But sin is always going to attempt to bifurcate, to divorce God's commands with his love. So we're constantly tempted by our flesh, by the world, by culture. We're constantly tempted to deny God's love or to distort God's love or to dilute God's love. As Martin Luther says, these are simple words, these, this phrase, God is love. These are simple words, but they are words that require faith in the highest degree, faith against which everything that is not of the Spirit of God fights. Conscience, the devil, hell, the judgment of God, and everything resist in order that we may not believe that God is love. You want to believe. Your flesh wants to believe that love is God. That, is, that does not take a supernatural work of the Spirit. That does not in any way require anything of you other than your own flesh. It takes a supernatural work of grace for you, though, to be able to confess that God is love in the way that the authors of Scripture mean it. 
So what do we mean when we say that God is love? We mean that he does whatever is best for those whom he loves and that everything he does, from sending his own son to giving us commands is motivated by that love. So do you believe that God is love? Or do you believe rather that love is God and thus reject the God of love? Let's move on to the last phrase here. So we've come to know and to believe that uh, the love that God has for us, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. It's an interesting thing that, uh, uh, that friends uh, do when it comes to uh, newborns is they always try to figure out which parent uh, the kid looks like, and hopefully it looks like at least one of them. But uh, so when it comes to, to my son, uh, people are about evenly distributed. Some of them think that he really looks like me, and some of them think that he really looks like uh, my wife. I don't really know which one is correct, but the reality is that he probably in certain ways resembles us both. And that's kind of the point of this passage here. Those who have been born of God resemble God. If God is love, and God dwells within us, then it stands to reason that we would take on the characteristic of love. Now on first glance, as you just read over this, and it says whoever abides in love, abides in God, you might take that phrase abides in love there uh, as if it's commending our love for God. We abide in love by loving God, in which case we might apply this text simply by ourselves. We go off to the mountains to be alone, in communion with God. We listen to the latest worship album. We pray all alone in our prayer closet or whatever it might be. The problem with that is in context, this is not talking at all about our love for God, but rather a love for others. The fact that God is love doesn't mean that he simply loves himself, although that is true. The Father loves the Son and the Spirit, and the Son loves the Father and the Spirit, and so forth. But the fact that God is love in this context means that he loves us. And so in context, it isn't our love for God which is on display, but our love for others. This is abundantly clear from the greater context of 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. 1 John 4.11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 1 John 4.12, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And we'll see in a couple of weeks, if anyone says, uh, 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 1 John 4.21, And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So we, we tend to think of the love chapter as 1 Corinthians 13. You've probably been to a lot of weddings where they did that. I actually went to, uh, I actually officiated a wedding. It was a CrossFit wedding, which is a weird thing. They literally did like push-ups during the ceremony. But uh, anyway, uh, I did a, a ceremony and they handed out these uh, water bottles afterwards, kind of like a, a, a Yeti or something like that. And, uh, and on it, they had inscribed um, uh, a passage and, uh, and they, uh, they didn't have the entire passage, they just had the reference, the verse. And they meant to put First John, uh, something from 1 John 4 about loving one another. Instead, they actually put something from John chapter 4. I looked it up and it said, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And I thought, that's a weird thing to put <laughs> on a wedding thing. But anyway, we should think of 1 John chapter 4 is kind of the love chapter. 
It's all about the way that we have been loved by God and therefore extend love to others. But it isn't our love for God that is on display in this chapter, in this call to abide in love, but rather our love for others. Those who have been loved, love. This was on full display over this past week as uh, we have, uh, as a church have grieved the loss of one of our own. So it's particularly fitting, though, that we talk about love this morning because I don't know of a better word that describes what Edwin Feeney exemplified. As I sat with friends, as I sat with family, as I sat with people here at the church or whatever it might be, there were a couple of words that came up over and over and over again that he gave, that he loved. I was a witness to that myself. I told this story in the funeral, but there were multiple times that I showed up at a member's house and, uh, and I was gonna help them move and I showed up late because I didn't really, really wanna help them move. But uh, I showed up and Edwin is coming down the stairs and he's uh, got a dolly and he's uh, pulling a dryer or a washer down the stairs and he has the biggest smile on his face. And I thought, who in the world smiles? This guy's crazy. Why are you smiling? You're helping somebody move. This is the worst thing ever. But he did it. I heard stories of people who said that at 9.30, they called him up and said, hey, can you come help me with this? And he was there within 10 minutes. One of our staff members has a tree in his yard because Edwin just simply came over and planted a tree. There are things that you see on the walls, that parent paging system that Edwin simply did because he's the only one tall enough to be able to do it. There's all of these evidences in our life, tangible evidences, things that you see, light bulbs that he changed, but also these emotional evidences of guys in this room whom he poured into and and, and people that loved him because he loved so many and so well. He would show up at his uh, mother-in-law's house to, to fill up her car with gas. Now why? Why was he always looking to serve others? Because he loved others. But why did he love others? Because he himself had tasted the love of God. And that's the point here. The more that you realize how much you have been loved, again, going back to the propitiatory sacrifice of the son, the more that you realize how much you have been loved, the more free you are to love others. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that we put a lot of stress here at Parkway on doctrines like total depravity. That's why we will not stand up here and say, you're good people, you're good enough and you're smart enough and gosh darn it, people like you. That's why we're not going to sit up here and say, you're great, you're not great, you don't have it all together, you're vile, you're wicked, you're depraved. God is great, God is good, God is loving. You are not lovely, God loves you in spite of you. We want to help you see how messed up you are apart from grace and mercy so that you will more appreciate what grace and mercy actually entails. You are not worthy of God's love. You're worthy of his wrath. You did not earn his grace, you earned condemnation. You didn't merit his mercy, you merited judgment. You deserve to be damned, you deserved hell. Now that again sounds harsh, that sounds mean, If Joel Osteen were to hear this, he would not be pleased. He would not approve or appreciate this message. But in reality, it is actually very freeing and good 
It's actually your only hope for true rest and joy. What do I mean by that? I mean, unless we really begin with this, we'll always assume that God's love for us is dependent on us. On good days, we'll assume that God loves us. On bad days, we'll assume that he doesn't. And so we yoke ourselves to legalism. We make God our servant rather than our master. But when we realize that we are unlovely, when we just admit that we're unlovely, the love of God is more fully manifest and so we are free to actually enjoy it instead of working to earn it. Not only that, but when we assume that God only loves those who are lovely, it's funny how we then seek to do the same, which means that we only love those who we deem worthy of our love. And interestingly enough, we don't find a lot of people that are actually worthy of our love, and so we end up eventually not really loving others at all. Or we only love those who love us or benefit us, and thus our love becomes self-centered. Our love becomes twisted, which really isn't love at all. But if we begin with this reality that we are unlovely, we not only glorify the love of God, but free ourselves to love as we have been loved. So do you, do you believe and know the love that God has for us? We're nearing the end of chapter four, thus nearing the conclusion of this little chapter's commentary on on love, so it bears repeating, lest we find ourselves tuning out. So again, let me ask this. Do you believe and know the love that God has for us demonstrated in the giving of his only begotten son by nature to make us beloved sons and daughters by adoption. Let's pray as we prepare for communion. Father, I thank you for your love. I confess that I am unlovely that I'm impatient, that I'm unkind, that I get angry, that I'm proud, that I'm covetous, that I'm lustful. And I pray that our congregation would recognize that too. Not so that we would just bask in despair, but so that we would bask in your love and your grace and your mercy that you have loved us in spite of us, which would actually free us then to receive your love to extend it to others. So I pray that you would help us. Make us, mold us into the image of your son who though he existed in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant. May we also love and serve one another. We pray these things because you're good and you do good and all of your works are love for those who love you in Christ's name, amen.